All right, so we're in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5. We're going to be in verses 17 through 20 today as we talk about righteousness. Doesn't that sound exciting? Uh, righteousness, what it means to be righteous. Um, I'm going to put it up on the, on the screen here, and then you can, read, um, you can read along with us. So Matthew 5, 17 through 20 says this. This is Jesus talking. He says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. So Jesus is doing something here that I really like when Jesus does this thing, which is he is confronting a question, an issue about him that others have, and he's sort of confronting it head on. And he's even anticipating the question before it's probably even fully asked by people. Uh, there's a pastor that came um, sort of on the scene probably 15 years ago. Um, his, uh, his name is Rob Bell. And um, Rob Bell became really well known for these videos called NUMA videos. He had this really incredibly effective way of communicating some pretty interesting biblical concepts through just sort of like visual videos. And, um, and he's a great communicator. He was a great, he was a great teacher, a t- teacher of the Bible for a long time. And so he became really popular. People like listening to his sermons, podcasts, read, read his books. Um, I'll never forget the first time a friend brought me this book called Velvet Elvis about like, you know, thinking about and asking questions about your faith. Um, He was a really great guy if you wanted a way to process through and think through questions, maybe even some questions that other people hadn't been comfortable asking about Christianity and about the Bible and some of the things that it said. And so it was very valuable in that way. But over the years, as he began to write more and more books, and he began to ask um, uh, questions and answer them in sort of different ways, um, you began to sort of wonder, at least I know that I began to wonder, what does this guy really believe, right? Like, he's good at asking questions. He's somewhat evasive sometimes with the answers, but I think it's because sometimes he doesn't want to maybe say what he believes or what he thinks about these things. His, his last, the last book, a few books ago, I guess, that he wrote, he wrote a book on, on the idea of hell and how biblical is the idea of hell. And as he wrote this book, he put a video on YouTube that was super provocative and kind of gives you the impression like he doesn't believe in it at all and in hell. And so you want, everybody's like freaking out, wanting to buy the book and like, what's this guy saying? What's going on? You know, and then, and then even if you read the book, you don't get a really clear idea of what he believes about this thing, right? Now, I bring that up not because I think, well, and, and he isn't a pastor anymore. He does a number of other things, mostly involving still writing books and asking questions, not necessarily giving many answers. Um, I stopped reading them because I just am a little bit like, oh, I got all kinds of questions, you know, but the answers are the more valuable part to me. And so I think the reason that I use that example of wanting to know what someone like that really believes is because when someone comes on the scene who really resonates with us on one level or another, somebody that we really go, yes, these are some things I've wondered. These are some things. Or even I'm seeing a different side of the faith that I haven't seen in a while, and I like that. The question that we have to ask then is like, so where's this coming from, right? 
How does, does this person see the Bible the same, the same way I do? Do they have the same beliefs that I have that this is coming from? And they're doing a better job of, of looking at how it answers some of these questions than I am. Now, I don't say that because I think that we have nothing to benefit from people who, who don't just completely agree with us. And I, I didn't say that sort of disclaimer in the first service, and I regretted it because I find a lot of value in reading different people and hearing different perspectives from people who don't necessarily have the exact view that I have on Scripture and things like that. But it's important at some point to ask, ask the question, Does this per- is this person saying something different because they believe something different about something, let's say, like who God is or the authority of his word or things like that? As Jesus came on the scene, he struck a chord with people. He began to have crowds gather around him wanting to hear what it was that he was talking about. And as they were doing that, it became very clear that he was not like the other religious people, the other religious teachers, especially the rabbis. He didn't make you feel bad as much as they did. He seemed more open to other kinds of people, people that the other religious leaders wouldn't have been open to in the past. And in many ways, people saw what Jesus was doing and felt drawn to him. He had authority in the way that he taught. He had authority by the things that he did that were miraculous. It was clear that God was in him somehow. But the question that people had, especially Jews of the day, were, so what does he think about the law? Does he believe it? Does he follow it? Because the other thing that Jesus wasn't doing a good job of was following all of the laws and customs that the Pharisees and the scribes taught. This is why early into the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus anticipates this. And it's why I say I love that Jesus does this because he does it a few times in the Gospels. He just directly addresses something that has to have been a question in people's mind in a way that I think I wish more people addressed today. Just came out and said, here's exactly what I believe about this thing. Here's exactly where I stand. And now we can move forward with that. Okay, so that's what Jesus is doing. He wants to let them know who he is in relationship to the law. And here's what he says. He says, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. He says, I've not come to abolish them but to fulfill them. The graciousness and humility of Jesus that drew people to him and his lack of following all of the laws and customs led people to wonder, is he here to abolish the law? Can we finally get rid of this law maybe that we don't want to deal with anymore? Or the religious leaders hoping and praying that he would say, I have come to abolish the law so they can say, see, don't listen to him. It's easy to show up and just say, I don't care about what, what, what we used to care about, Right? Things are new. Times are changing. I have a different perspective. But instead, he says, I've not come to abolish it. I've come to fulfill it. He says the law or the prophets, which means he's saying whether you're looking at the law, which is the first five books of the Old Testament, the Pentateuch, which is where we get a lot of the customs, a lot of the traditions, and a lot of the law, the the law that God gives his people, the Israelites, or the prophets, which were the people that were also recorded in the Old Testament, a separate group. He says whether you're looking at one of those or the other, he says, I've not come to abolish the things that those people said, the things that they recommended that we do, but I've come to fulfill them. Uh, The example of the prophets, let's say. The prophets were there to both point people to what was to come, but really the primary goal of a prophet and job of a prophet is to be a reminder. A prophet is a reminder of the truth of God. They're the ones that go, do you remember? Does anybody remember what happened when we didn't do that? Does anybody remember what God said about that thing? It kind of feels like people aren't remembering. Hey, everybody, do you remember? Does anybody remember? Uh, You probably should. And he's saying all of the things that the prophets foretold, that they warned about, that they reminded people of the values that they had, 
he said, I've not come to get rid of any of that stuff. I've come to fulfill it fully. Now, when Jesus says law, and when the Old Testament, when the, when the scribes and the Pharisees, the, the Jewish people at the time, when they said law, they meant two different things. And this is where a lot of his teaching comes from. This is where you have to understand that when they say law, they usually mean customs. And when he says law, he means it is written. Okay, I'll give you an example of this. Over hundreds and hundreds of years as God's people decided that they wanted to find the most accurate way to apply the laws to their lives, they would continue to sit down together and say, okay, now let's think through some of the scenarios that we'd be faced with in life. It says in the Bible that we should um, honor the Sabbath, that we should relax on the Sabbath. We shouldn't work on the Sabbath. But, you know, we should probably be a little bit more specific about that because it seems like some people are working, you know? And what that guy's doing over there, I mean, he says it's not work, but I think we can all agree. It looks pretty physically exerting, right? And, uh, and maybe I've got kids and I don't want to deal with them on the Sabbath because that's work. And so can we make some rules about that, right? So I don't have to do that. So as people sat down year after year after year and kept looking at it going, well, wait a second, what about this issue? What about this issue? What about this issue? It became more and more and more of these customs. I will give you an example, and these are all real, okay, of, of just the aspect if we look at the Sabbath alone, okay? They said on the Sabbath that you couldn't carry a burden, but then someone said, well, what's a burden, right? I mean, that's pretty relative. A burden is equal to... Uh, uh, the weight, it's food, okay, we'll say according to food, how much food can you carry? It has to be equal to or less than a dried fig, okay? Um, enough wine for mixing in a goblet, milk enough for one swallow, honey enough to put upon a wound, water enough to moisten an eye salve, paper enough to write a custom house notice upon, ink enough to write two letters of the alphabet, read enough to make a pen, they would cause people to worry if you were a tailor and you left your house and you find a pin or a needle inside of your coat, you've broken the law because you've, you've prepared yourself for work. Even to the point to which a person with false teeth or a false appendage couldn't use that thing on the Sabbath. Okay, they couldn't put that thing on because that's considered a burden, that's considered working in some way. Healing on the Sabbath Okay, you were allowed to heal on the Sabbath, contrary to popular belief. You were allowed to heal on the Sabbath, but you weren't allowed to make people better. You were just allowed to stop the bad thing that was happening. So you basically could do whatever it took to stop them from getting worse on the Sabbath, but you're not allowed to do anything to make it better. That's for tomorrow. That's for Monday. You're not allowed to write on the Sabbath. And so if they wrote, it had to be in like fruit juice or in some sand on the ground so that it wouldn't be permanent. And if you did write something impermanent, then you had to write just a few letters. That's all you were allowed to write on the Sabbath, okay? These are all the laws and the customs that the Jewish people were talking about when they, when they looked at Jesus and said, this guy's breaking all the rules. This guy's breaking all the laws. This guy's eating on the Sabbath. He's not washing his hands the right way. He's wearing his, you know, fake leg or whatever somebody was wearing. He's breaking the rules, So this is what happens in a longstanding institutional religion when people just continue to reevaluate the rules again and again and again. So there's a good version, a right version, and then there's a wrong version. This is why Jesus says throughout the Sermon on the Mount, you have heard it was said, but I tell you. Said means the Pharisees and the scribes. 
People didn't read these things for themselves at the time. So you heard it said means the scribes and Pharisees have said this to you. I'm here to tell you that's not actually what it says, first of all, and what God told his people. And second of all, like they're not even properly understanding clearly what God told his people to do because of what they're saying and how they've changed it so much. Now that is not to say, and what Jesus says here is he says, I have come to fulfill these things. He doesn't say I have come to replace them. And he doesn't say I've come to do away with them. Now, it's often easy to think that like all the stuff you read about in the Old Testament just goes away, doesn't matter anymore because Jesus is here, that he somehow replaces it, that he somehow gets rid of it. But that's not what Jesus does. If you know anything about the gospel, about the way that God manifests itself through his word and through he has throughout history, you realize that it is all built upon itself. One thing has been dependent upon the thing that came before it. Think about it like a computer, Okay. If you went and you bought a brand new computer today, that started a long time ago with a guy inventing a thing called a typewriter, okay? Someone invented a typewriter. And that typewriter is not, I'm about to blow your mind, a computer, okay? They're not the same thing. If you took a computer back in time, gave it to the inventor of a typewriter, it blows mind, right? And we could all agree that a computer is probably better than a typewriter. But could you have gotten to a computer? without a typewriter? No. You have to start somewhere and build. And this is how we see scripture work, the way God even reveals himself through his word. To where Jesus coming is like, his, Jesus is the word, the word in flesh, which means God, God's communicating something to us with the very physical embodiment of a person, right? That's a lot more in-depth. That's a lot more multidimensional than just the law that they had before. But the law was important because without the law, you cannot have the gospel. If you look at some of the fathers of, the, of, of many of the traditions of our faith, people like, people like uh, Martin Luther, people like John Wesley, these are people who encountered the law in a visceral way. And as a result of it, were completely overwhelmed with and defeated by it, honestly. They, were, they recognized quickly, I can't do this. I'm a bad person. I'm messed up. There's something wrong with me. And they're, over, they're being overwhelmed by their sense of inadequacy before God through the law was an important step for them coming to then appreciate the gospel and appreciate it fully, they did. And be grateful for it, they were. And understand the grace of God. Without the law, we cannot understand the grace of God. We cannot understand how it all works. And so as God himself reveals himself through his word, through his law, Jesus is saying, I'm here to fulfill the stuff that you guys read about. I'm not here to do away with it. I'm not here to say that it was wrong, that it was bad, that you were misunderstanding it. I'm here to say that this now is what comes next. And he says to them, he says, truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. This is huge. Until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until it is accomplished. Here's what he's saying. He's saying something that we have to pay a lot of attention to. He's saying that God's law, aka now his word, God's word, the word of God, is vital, that it is important, that it is so important that Jesus himself says, I will not change any of it. 
okay? The iota is this little apostrophe. It's the smallest thing that you could see in the Hebrew alphabet. They were all over the place, everywhere. He says, I'm not getting rid of even one of those things. Even more with the dot thing, you get even more specific. The dot is basically him saying, any aspect of a letter that seems extra that you could take away and still not change the letter, I'm not come to, pull the, to get rid of that thing. Because I know you want to understand this so deeply, I'm going to give you guys an example, okay? You're about to find out what sans serif really means, okay? There's, there's different kinds of fonts out there. This is so exciting, okay? Those, believe it or not, are both the same letter. As somebody who's trying to teach my kids how to read right now, I'm frustrated by fonts being different because they think letters are different because of how fonts work, right? And so one of those is a capital I. And the other one, I know, get ready for it, is a capital I, right? Why, Ed, do they look different? Well, I'm about to blow your mind, okay? Because one has some extra parts. It's a different way of writing the letter I. And what Jesus was saying when he said, not even a dot, is he's saying, I'm not even going to cut the little edges off the top and the bottom and leave it that one way, which would still leave it exactly the same. I'm not even going to do that. He says, I'm not here to make a change to it because of how important it is. He is going very over the top, if you can't tell, in making it clear that now that I've come, says Jesus, God's word won't change. And if it didn't change for Jesus himself coming, why would it change now? Is there anything that could happen that would cause God's word to need to be changed, reevaluated in a new way, reinterpreted a different way? No, there isn't. Do we take God's word this seriously? Most don't. Do we look at it with the respect that Jesus has for it? Most don't. We often incorrectly think that taking the Bible seriously and handling it rightly means studying it a lot more, right? If I study it a lot, maybe then I'm taking it seriously. If I get some theological training and if I get enough books and resources to help me better understand it, then I'm taking God's word seriously. But what Jesus says to us is that if you're going to take God's word seriously, then you take it in its entirety, that's what he's saying here. To take it seriously is to take all of it. Basically, those who don't take God's word seriously are characterized that way because they only accept part of it. Because they say, here are the parts that really resonate with me. Here are the parts that I really see as true in life and in the world. And then there's all the other stuff that I'm not really sure what place that has. Or we simply say, the verdict's out on that one for me. I haven't figured it out yet. I'm not sure, and I haven't figured it out yet. He's not saying you have to know everything about it, but this is what it is to take his word seriously, as seriously as Jesus is. And the challenge in any culture, in any life stage, in any maturity level, in any era, historically, is to take part of the Bible, but not the whole of the Bible. That is the temptation at any point is to say, there is this part, there is this aspect, there is this teaching, there is this rule, there is this value, there is the tradition that I take, and I'm not sure about the other stuff. God's word is one of those things where when taken in its full sort of uh, pure form is so incredibly powerful. There is nothing that powerful. But when watered down, when taken apart, when taken piece by piece, it loses that. It's not intended to be 
seen that way, used that way. It's kind of like um, a couple of months ago, we had this eclipse. I don't know if you know about this, but there was an eclipse. You may have noticed it. And um, there, there was this eclipse, right? And we had um, an astronomer come and speak here. And he talked to me in the back before we started. And he was asking me where I was going to see the eclipse. And I was like, what do you mean where I'm going to see it? I'm going to walk out in my cul-de-sac and see it, right? I'm a lazy guy. I'm not going anywhere else. And he goes, and he was like going to drive to totality, to where it was totality. And I was like, hey, it sounds, what is it, like 98% or something? I was like, 98% sounds pretty good to me. And he, and he looks at me like, you were the dumbest person ever. He just looks at me like... You know, he's like, it's the sun, is what he said. It's the sun, okay? You may not think 2% of the sun's a lot. Believe me, it's a lot, right? Uh, and those of you who drove, he didn't actually say it that, 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 that meanly. He's a very nice guy. Um, but those of you who drove the totality or who saw it that way, it was totally dark. You take off your glasses, you look right at it, right? It's totally different than, than those of us who weren't even that close to it. Okay, and, and, and what it made me recognize and really value and appreciate was honestly the brightness of the sun. The fact that it, as, it, as the eclipse was happening more and more, you'd be like, yeah, it still looks pretty normal outside. And then you'd get your glasses on and go look and three quarters of the sun is covered up. But it still looks mostly normal outside, right? That is how powerful that is. And when you recognize what that eclipse is the difference between like totality and anything else. And when it comes to something as powerful as the sun, that's a really big difference. God's word sort of works that way, but in reverse. You can't just take a part of it and think, oh, it's so powerful. If I just take a part of it, that it's going to be amazing and it's going to change everything for me. No. God's word is something that is, when like taken together, is so potent and so powerful and is so significant. Do you believe the Bible is true, not in parts, but in whole? Do you believe that the Bible in whole ought to guide you and ought to direct you, even if you don't fully understand how that works? If Jesus' coming didn't change the law and God's word, then we can be pretty clear that no matter what happens, that that doesn't change it either. He goes on to say this, therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Jesus is talking to his disciples, assuming that they will eventually be teaching people these things. But what's also true, not even just of those disciples, but the fact that when you, the way you view God's word is the way that you tell other people to view God's word, right? The way that you take it, the way that you apply it is by nature the way that you model for applying it and taking it to other people. So Jesus recognizes what you believe about the law, what you believe about me is what you're going to tell people about the law and about me. It's what you're going to show people about the law and about me. And to his very disciples, he's saying, be careful and do this thing right. Because it's bad if you don't. It'll affect people badly. Righteousness that surpasses that of the Pharisees is impossible sounding. For a group of people who are known for being incredibly righteous, who are known for having more rules than anyone else, how do you become more righteous than those people? And it is because as Jesus shows up on the scene and he sees these Pharisees and he sees these scribes, it takes him almost no time to come to the conclusion that they have missed the law, that they have missed righteousness. 
this is what he tells them. Think of the Pharisees as being like parents. Maybe some of you are like, that's not hard. No. Think of the Pharisees as being like parents. Okay, and that, that they have a child and you ask their child, like, do you have good, well, you ask them, are you a good parent? And they go, yes, I give my child food. I give them clothes. I give them a bed to sleep in. I give them a roof over their head. If you've ever listed these things off, sorry, I may make you sound bad soon. Um, I give them a roof over their head. I send them on their way to school or whatever. I do all of the things that a parent should do. And then you ask the child, are they a good parent? And they say, well, yes, they do all of those things, but they never look at me. They never tell me they love me. They don't communicate anything about that. Do I have a relationship with them? No. Yes, they technically do those things. Once when I was a kid, I was in a counselor's office and I was complaining about my parents and he did the worst thing ever. He pulled out a book of California state law like codes and he said, I'm gonna read to you what your parents are required to do to be considered good parents. This is not good. If anyone pulls this on you, young people just run out of the room because it's not gonna go well for you because he listed off all those things. Do they give you food? Okay, they, oh, okay, well, shoot. I thought we were gonna get them on that one. Uh, do they give you clothing? Well, yeah, okay, clearly, you know, do they give you a house, you know? But so there, you, could, you could meet by all the standards and definitions of the state of California, you could be a good parent. You could follow all those rules and you could maybe make up more rules about providing those things and caring for those things. But what makes a good parent? It is, a, it is a relationship and there is love and there are so many other things. And this is simply what happened. Jesus showed up, he saw the scribes and Pharisees and probably didn't take him long to realize they think this is righteousness? They think this is what the father wants of them? Are they kidding They've missed it. They've missed it. And so when he says your righteousness must surpass that of the scribes and Pharisees, he is saying it must exceed that righteousness. He is saying don't miss it the way that they have. They've only got part of it. And it doesn't even seem to be a very big part because they've added so many rules to that part that you can't even see what it started with. I had a friend that was in an accountability group with me once and we were talking about our marriages and he was having some struggles in his marriage and they were just like him and his wife were, you know, really having a lot of conflict over some pretty normal things like, you know, money and parenting and things like that. And as we would talk week after week and every different situation would come up, how'd you handle it this week? What did you do this week? Did you have the date night? Did you sit down and have the talk conversation about that thing? Did you try to do this differently? We got to this point where we realized that he was trying to do the right things because they were the right things to do. And what he wasn't really doing much of was just loving his wife. And it was very convicting for him to go, do I love my wife? And now, if you know this guy, you know that, that he wants to be the guy that does the right thing. He's like, it's important to me that I find out what the right thing is to do, and that's the thing that I do. And what his wife saw in that was, oh yeah, big surprise, you're trying so hard to do the right thing in this relationship with me, because that's what you want to do. It's almost a form of self-righteousness, and it can miss the heart completely if you don't keep that in the focus as well. What Jesus is saying is he is saying the heart matters. There's more to this than just these rules. There's a quote that I came across this week that I think perfectly sums this up, and this one author said, Christ's righteousness is radical, not because it's new but because he lived it. That's the reason it was radical, was because he showed up and actually did all this stuff. 
and actually cared about the stuff you're supposed to care about and actually believe the things about God that you, need, you should believe because they're true. That's what's so radical about Christ, that he did it. And so what he's saying to his disciples is if you want to be radical, just do it. Just live it. Don't obsess about one part of it over everything else. Don't think you have to perfect one aspect. Just say, I'm going to live what I read and what I see. What I know is what God wants for me to do. I mean, think about what it would look like to really fully live out any one aspect of some of the things that Jesus taught. When Jesus says, love your neighbor as yourself. Think about that. Love your neighbor. He doesn't say, be a good neighbor. He said, be a nice neighbor. He didn't say, do the wave, you know. He said, love your neighbor as yourself. How much love is that? If you're me, it's a lot. He says, forgive, part of the Lord's prayer is he teaches on prayer. As we ask for God's forgiveness, what do we say? We say, as I forgive those. He says, we're called by Jesus to forgive those who trespass against us. To fully forgive those who trespass against us. Man, is that hard to do. Man, does that take a lot. Man, is that a radical thing for someone to actually do. Not with a few people, not with one person, not with their favorite person but with those who trespass against them. Jesus, um, I was reading in Matthew 19 this last week, if you're reading on this bookmark that we're reading, you probably would have read that as well. In Matthew 19 this week, Jesus encounters this rich young ruler. And uh, and he meets Jesus on this road and he says, what must I do to have eternal life? And Jesus says, "Uh, obey my father's commandments, care about the things that he cares about basically. And he lists a few of them off. And the guy says, good news. I've been doing that since I was a kid. And Jesus says, okay, then uh, there's one more thing. Sell everything you have, give it to the poor and follow me. And the guy walks away sad. Keep in mind that story does not end with a new disciple. It ends with a guy who walks away sad. Why? Because what seemed like obedience was just him doing the things that are easy for him to do. Picking out the things that are easy for him to work on. What would that look like for someone to walk around saying, I'm so righteous, thinking I'm so righteous, and all the while, the single biggest idol that they've ever had in their life stays right there in the center of their life. Never addressed, never looked at, never thought about. That someone could pursue righteousness for their life. Really, it seems like he wants to be righteous. He's asking Jesus about it. And when Jesus reveals the very thing in his heart that really is keeping him from it, he walks away sad, as most have done and most will do. What he's talking about is essentially being even more devout than the devout people. Being more radical and more zealous than the radical and zealous people of the time. Now, many people would hear this and go, yeah, that's the last thing the world needs, is a bunch of people saying, I'm going to do every single thing the Bible talks about. There are many people who look, at, who look at religion, look at Christianity, look at faith and say, yeah, what our world doesn't need is more of that. In fact, what our world needs is for people to maybe tone it down a little bit. Fine, just write them, write them out, right in the middle there and have that be how you live, you know? How about just like your neighbor? That's fine. We're fine with like your neighbor and kind of love them sometimes. We don't need a bunch of radical people out there running the streets, Right? This is a legitimate concern that people have about faith and religion in the world. Do we want more religious people in the world? Do we want more devout people in the world? Or do we want everyone to just just tone it down? 
There's an author, Tim Keller, who writes about this. And in a book called The Reason for God, a book about believing in God, he tackles it because you have to. And here's what he says. He defines a fanatic as someone who is thought to be over-believing and over-practicing Christianity. So a fanatic is someone who's thought to be an over-believer. They believe too much. They practice a little too much of this stuff. And here's what he says that the world needs. He says, think of people you consider fanatical. They're overbearing, self-righteous, opinionated, insensitive, and harsh. Why? It's not because they are too Christian, but because they are not Christian enough. They are fanatically zealous and courageous, but they are not fanatically humble, sensitive, loving, empathetic, forgiving, or understanding as Christ was. His argument is this. What the world needs is more fanatic, more fanatical, and more devout Christians. What the world does not need is for everybody to tone it down in this whole following Jesus thing. That the problems that people would say religion and the Bible create are created by those who take parts of it and run with them like crazy. Some would even say, oh, here's an example. Look at all the bad things that have happened in the world and that you could attribute to the Bible, right? But there will always be bad people wanting bad things and taking the Bible along with a lot of other things and saying, oh yeah, that adds credibility to this thing I want, this thing I care about. That bumps it up beyond the human level to the divine level, and now it has to exist. It has to be a real thing. People would say, look at slavery. Didn't Christianity start slavery? No, not at all. Wasn't the Bible used to, to encourage slavery? The Bible's been used to encourage lots of things. Who were the people who fought the most adamantly against slavery and ultimately had a huge hand in abolishing it? People like Martin Luther King, people like William Wilberforce in England, Christians who looked at the Bible in its entirety while everyone else around them was looking at parts of the Bible and said, I cannot sit, I cannot sit well with this. This does not sit well with me. Martin Luther King Jr. Is, has made such an impact in this world, not even because he said, we're going to fight this thing, but because he said, here's how Jesus would do it. He said, we're going to do it the way that a Christian ought to do it. We live in a world that says that, uh, that the more that you take the Bible and that you live it out, the less inclusive you will be, the less tolerant that you will be. We live in a society that is, no, that is not inclusive. We do not live in a society that is inclusive. If you're someone who, we'll pick something incredibly recent. If you're someone who, who has sexually assaulted another person, if you're someone who has, um, who, who has done something like that in our society right now, you are done. You're out. We say, we'll put up with a lot, but there are certain kinds of people, certain kinds of things that we will now say, no way. We're done with them. And what does Jesus tell us about people? He says, and you see from his interactions with people, he says, Christians are the ones who say, nope, no matter what anyone's done, no matter who anyone has been, no matter what they are doing or who they are being right now, we are called to love them and to include them in our love. So whereas many would say, oh no, if you begin to take the Bible as a whole, if you begin to do it all, then you'll end up like pushing everybody out. You'll end up creating a divided world for us. We live in a divided world. And the way Jesus calls us to live is in a way that is very radical. To follow Jesus means to take God's word, all of it, 
and to embody it. I think for a lot of people, what drives the legalism that Jesus was encountering is fear. The Pharisees, the scribes, I think most of them were probably afraid. And they were afraid of doing the wrong thing. They did want to be righteous. They were so afraid of being caught doing the wrong thing that they overcorrected in every way. And they came up with lots of extra things that they could do just to be safe. So we have to be careful not to let fear of doing this wrong thing, this unrighteous thing, take over and push us toward legalism or push us to a place of being void of, of heart and compassion and grace. What true righteousness is, according to Jesus, a righteousness that surpasses that of the Pharisees, is living out what we encounter in the word of God and doing so without holding anything back. It's allowing our hearts to be evaluated with our actions. That's what we're about to look at through this Sermon on the Mount, starting next week, just looking at anger. We're looking at what it's like to say it's not just the things you do, but it's what's going on inside of your heart. And what's hard about that is you can't point that out as easily in other people. You have to be able to see it in yourself. We must be, be willing to say what I see in God's word, as hard as it is to reconcile with my life, with my world, I have to do that work. And if I do it, it's going to mean evaluating my own heart, who I am. That's what righteousness that surpasses the Pharisees looks like. This is what the world needs more of. Fanatical, overly devout Christians. Let's pray. Father, we come before you and ask you for the courage to look at your word in its entirety and not just the parts that appeal to us. Father, we ask you for the compassion for others that comes from following Jesus just as much as the desire for righteousness and holiness that comes from following Jesus. Uh, Lord, we, um, we acknowledge that it is, it is really difficult some of the things that you point out in your word, that because of man's fallen nature, because of the corrupt nature of even our own hearts, that no one is exempt from, from your judgment, ultimately. And that as much as our world wants to classify people as good and bad, right and wrong, Lord, we know the truth, and the truth is that we all have fallen and we all have sinned and we all live, um, have struggled with living in that, Lord. And so our prayer is that as we take your word and Jesus' words, that we recognize that he is the fulfillment of everything that came before him and that he, the one whose opinion matters more than anything in the universe, he has a really high view of scripture. And so our prayer is that we would have that as well, Lord, that it is the thing we would hold on to when all else seems to fail and be confusing and hard to see and understand. It's in your name that we pray. Amen. Father, we thank you because you are the only one that is worthy of our praise. We thank you because of who you are, because of what you've done, because of how good you are and how much you love us, Lord. It's in your name that we pray. Amen. At the end of Matthew chapter 24, I'm going to say one more thing. Jesus says that heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. That means the scriptures are more enduring than the universe itself. It's a crazy thought. It's an incredible thought. It's a huge, powerful thought. 
Um, we talked last week about being salt and light and about how we shed light in this world as we proclaim the word of God. And light does two things. One, it gives sight to the blind. And so there are many who are so grateful and filled with joy when they see the light. And it also un uncovers a lot of ugliness as light shines on sin and death. And there are others who are sad and disgusted by what they see. And so we recognize that there are times when adhering to the word of God is, is a joyful, glorious thing. And times when it is difficult and it brings upon persecution on the very people who have it themselves. And so the challenge for us is to go forth with that light, to recognize that when all else seems confusing and like, a, like it fails and like it's a mess all around us, that God's word itself endures, the words of Jesus endure after all of the rest of this itself is even gone. Amen? All right, God bless you guys. Have a great week.